Welcome to a special edition of the Weekly Appellate Report for October 1st, 2018, the first Monday in October, which means, of course, that the U.S. Supreme Court has gaveled back into session after an eventful summer recess that saw the departure of its most pivotal member, Anthony Kennedy, and a contentious confirmation battle over his successor that has riven Congress and much of the country. Questions of where a right of center replacement the long-time median justice might take the court over the next generation, have yielded to more immediate considerations as to whether, in fact, the chosen nominee, now the subject of a sexual assault claim from his teenage years, will indeed ascend to the high court, and to what extent that institution will be impacted by the political tumult attending Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process. But notwithstanding all of that, the court today, shorthanded for the second time in the past three years, will begin October term 2018. And here to preview it are two guests. We hear from Justin Levitt, a constitutional scholar and professor of law at Loyola Law School, and Blaine Evanson, a partner with Gibson Dunn and Crutcher's Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group. We'll be addressing the present docket's most notable cases, some areas of law most likely to see development this term, and what to expect from a SCOTUS that is now, really for the first time in the Chief Justice's tenure, properly described as the Roberts Court. We'll also ask them about Brett Kavanaugh's pending confirmation and how it might impact High Court going forward. Don't forget, before we welcome in our guest, a couple of things. First, for the past few months now, our show has been accessible via your mobile device. Just find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Weekly Appellate Report. And, as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of the show. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears, and one California CLE credit can be yours. Okay, Blaine Evanson is a partner with Gibson Dunn and Crutcher in Orange County. He's part of the firm's appellate and constitutional law practice group. He's represented a number of clients with appeals before the U.S. Supreme Court. Blaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're joined as well by Justin Levitt, the Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Law at Loyola Law School, where he teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and the law of political power. He's the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington. We worked on voting rights, among other issues. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, so glad to, to have you both here to unpack and preview this, uh, this new term commencing today as we speak, the first Monday of October. Before getting into maybe some of the specific cases that the, the court will grapple with over the next few months, there are certainly some non-case-specific related issues that have really dominated the news more so, in particular, of course, the pending confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, currently a judge on the D.C. Circuit, whose uh, confirmation process has hit a bit of a, a stall. As we speak, he is awaiting, we are all awaiting uh, what seems to be a, about a week-long FBI investigation into some sexual assault uh, accusations that have been brought against him. That investigation was commenced after last week's hearings, where on one of those accusers testified before Congress. Just to get started with Judge Kavanaugh being the potential ninth judge of this newly constituted court to replace Anthony Kennedy, in your guys' view, how how will they impact the court and the public perception of the court? And let me just to start, sort of, Blaine, do you have kind of general thoughts on the the latest events in in these confirmation hearings, the uh, the testimony by Dr. Blasey Ford and and Judge Kavanaugh himself last Thursday, and sort of where we're at uh, at this moment with the that uh, confirmation hearing. Yeah, my 
reaction. I watched both of the both their testimonies and some of the back and forth with the senators, and my reaction to it is just that the whole thing is so sad. Uh, you know, my I think my reaction was more more human than you know legal or political. It's sad for Dr. Ford, who has clearly suffered her whole life because of this experience. I can't imagine how difficult the last the past few weeks have been. And it's sad for Judge Kavanaugh. As he said it, his reputation has been ruined. This isn't just bad press for him. It's life-altering for him and his family. And I think it's hard to watch their testimonies without just, you know, reacting in a human way. They're not robots or actors. So I, I, and I, and I also think it's hard to watch their two testimonies without feeling for both of them and without feeling like they're both being very genuine and telling the truth. So I'm I, I, I come away from these with just sort of not feeling that there's been any sort of conclusion or conclusive one way or the other. So I, yeah. that's sort of my reaction, and I think it's just, it just seems like a terrible way to, to resolve sexual assault allegations. And, you know, my hope going forward is that the impact on the court is, you know, that it doesn't impact the court as much as people fear because it's really just been a rough couple of weeks for, for Judge Kavanaugh and for his reputation and the reputation of the court. Yeah, uh, Professor, do you have uh, thoughts on the confirmation process as it's uh, unfolded thus far? Yeah, I, I largely agree. I mean, it's you can't be a fan of the legal system or a fan of the democratic system or a fan of the judicial system and have watched the hearings the other day and have been happy about it any way around. I think Blaine's absolutely right. It it was sad and disturbing and disappointing. And I think it deepens what was already pretty serious wound to the judicial confirmation process, particularly for the Supreme Court, although not exclusively. So this is the third confirmation process in a row where there's been a deep controversy, sort of independent of the jurisprudence of the nominees in question. Um, You had uh, Judge Garland put forward, uh, never brought to a vote in the final year of the Obama administration. You had Judge Gorsuch brought forward and the the nuclear option invoked, that is the decision to do away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. And now the current controversy over Judge Kavanaugh. And I think it has intensified the partisan warfare over appointments in a way that I too hope doesn't redound to the court, but it's hard to see how there won't be spillover. I think we don't know where the partisan warfare ends now. There won't be another nominee in a period of split government, I think. So when the president and the senator are different, controlled by different parties, I think it's very difficult to imagine how a nominee can go forward. I don't know what happens the next time the Democrats control both bodies. I don't know what happens if the Democrats take the House and decide that they want to use that power to, to, to trade another shot in the partisan warfare now. And I don't know how we get a path back. Thankfully, I don't think it's yet affected the current eight members of the court. And so with the term ahead, I don't think you'll see the same partisan warfare playing out among the existing members of the court. But I don't know where we go from here. Well, certainly... Um hard not to sort of picture those other eight members of the court last week and maybe in particular the the, the most you know, noted institutionalist among them the chief uh, john roberts and and wonder what he or, or they might have had going through their heads watching 
really the the real politic, the the hard uh, political aspects of this process be laid quite bare before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, m- maybe just one more on that. If either of you would care to, I know we're sort of in a holding pattern at the moment, but Blaine, do you have any thoughts as to what might be the, the most likeliest uh, way this situation resolves? Do you do you think that we might see Judge Kavanaugh nonetheless, notwithstanding these tumultuous few weeks on the bench here shortly? Or, um, you know, what what have you been thinking in terms of how this situation might resolve? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I am, you know, no political expert, so this is just my guess. But I, you know, you see Jeff Flake really trying to walk this very tight line between supporting Judge Kavanaugh, but also giving space for him and some of the other uh, moderate Republicans and Democrats to really to vote for him. And depending on how this FBI investigation plays out, I mean, if, if you see the FBI investigation coming to a conclusion that, you know, there's just not enough here to draw any conclusion one way or the other, then that may give him and and Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski and some of the Democratic senators a way to vote for Judge Kavanaugh with some cover that, you know, we have no idea what happened. We were certainly not disbelieving uh, Dr. Ford, but there's not enough here to base a confirmation decision on. You know, that, that is, it seems to me, the most likely path for him to be confirmed. The most likely path for him not being confirmed, you know, seems to me to be more about him, you know, the allegation that he has not told the truth. That's what you see Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski and even Senator Flake, I think, as of today, talking about as being disqualifying. So if if they or the FBI investigation comes up with, you know, some feeling that he has not been truthful, then that to me to be, would be the most likely way in which he uh, he would not get confirmed. I mean, and my own view, I mean, I, I watch his confirmation here. I, I watch his testimony, rather, and he seems totally genuine to me. I, I think a lot of the allegations of not telling the truth are pretty nitpicky, but that seems to me to be what Senator Flake, Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski are really focused on in terms of their decision. Yeah, uh, Professor, do you have any, any thoughts on that as to the, the likeliest path forward? Or specifically as to the point that Blaine brought up about the way in which uh, many thought as to, to certain sort of um, tangential questions, uh, the, the judge perhaps was maybe less than 100% candid when it came to things like the meaning behind particular entries in his yearbook or the nature and extent of uh, his alcohol consumption or drinking habits. I largely agree with what Blaine said. And you could hear this also from figures not free of controversy, like James Comey, who pointed to, I think as he called it, a pattern of smaller lies that might potentially reveal bigger ones. Because I agree that the to the extent there were quibbles about honesty, at least in the hearing last week, they seemed small, but nevertheless distressingly present, particularly some of the explanations of his yearbook entry. I recently went back and looked at my yearbook entry, and it is stupid and silly and embarrassing and in part <laughs> impenetrable. It's in a similar sort of disjointed format with uh, little inside jokes and inside references that I think you'd need a Rosetta Stone to uncover now. But some of the judge's responses to questions about that strained credulity. I think that if he were sitting as a judge evaluating his own explanations for what he said, it's difficult to find that he would that he would find those own explanations credible. 
part of that is, is a very natural human covering for you know an, an embarrassing persona but he's in a, a position asking for interviewing for a job with an enormous amount of power unfortunate that it's an enormous amount of power i i wish that we had a system more reliant on the legislature and a little more reliant on the executive but he's interviewing for a position of enormous power and it is i think some of the defenses that he offered did not speak particularly well to his ability to confront past embarrassments in large portions of the remainder of his life particularly his time on the bench in dc he's acquitted himself very differently and so i think as blaine indicated it, it will depend on well two things one how the senators view his character and two and probably far more important how the senators think the voters will view his character there is no shortage of nose counting going on now uh, and will continue for the course of the week about how particular sets of voters in particular states would be likely to respond this year in the midterms and and the next cycle in 2020 based on these hearings and part of the the danger of a process this polarized is people have not only come to their own views but there is palpable rage out there i think on both sides and that is it's a dangerous position to try to be counting noses in political environment just wanted to pick up one thing there from what you said professor that you know uh, some commentators have posited the argument that were the judge inclined or not hesitant to maybe mislead senators on some of the, the small questions or small details um, that would be worrisome for his treatment of, of larger and more complex problems uh, sitting as a judge. Um, but I've also seen an argument that at least sounds like something along, along the lines of, well, it's it's kind of silly and maybe it should be out of bounds really for the Congress to, to parse high school yearbook entries. As, as you say, I'm sure we all have things in there that we wouldn't want to have nitpicked by the entire country some 35 years after writing them. And so that argument sort of goes that maybe it's understandable that he would perhaps mislead or just offer explanations that seem, um, you said extreme credulity. Some of those explanations do seem like they're certainly not the, the most likeliest of explanations for, for those yearbook entries. Do you give any credit to that sort of argument that it's it might be okay if he's not being totally forthcoming on those questions because they're, they should be out of bounds, uh, Professor? As a human... I think it's entirely okay and natural, but he's also, he's asking for a job. This is a job interview for an enormously prominent position. And he takes the oath exceedingly seriously. The senators take their oaths exceedingly seriously. And however silly or embarrassing, when you apply for a position as Supreme Court justice, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, I've taken that oath, and it focuses the mind. And so were Judge Kavanaugh discussing his yearbook entry with friends, I wouldn't blink twice at what seemed like strained interpretations of some cryptic and embarrassing things. But sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee asking for a job is a very different environment. And if if a little pause and reflection was in order, I don't know that Judge Kavanaugh acquitted himself as we would hope. Perhaps perhaps as we might expect, but but not as we would hope. 
Blair, do you have anything to add there on, on that point? Yeah, a few thoughts. You know, I, I have a hard time, you know, thinking back to, I mean, I'm, I'm not as old as Judge Kavanaugh, so it's not 35 years ago, but even thinking back 20 years ago, I have very few memories from high school that I can describe in any sort of detail. I have no idea how I would interpret similar cryptic things from my yearbook. I haven't gone back and looked, but I just have no faith in memory to be able to make real uh, sense of what was written there. And so I give someone, I give both Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford a lot of slack in trying to remember these things from 35 years ago. Um, and I'm very hesitant to impute, you know, dishonesty to them when they're trying to make sense of the details of that time. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that to this point about, you know, what's in and out of bounds, if, if we hold Supreme Court nominees or even lower court nominees to the standard of, you know, not making mistakes in high school, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to equate a sexual assault allegation with mistakes, but, you know, talking about, you know, comments in yearbooks and stuff, you know, no one is going to meet that standard. And, and so I worry about, you know, laying everyone's life on the table and being critical of everything that they've done, of, you know, drinking in high school and, and yearbook comments and the like, because, you know, everyone makes mis- mistakes during that period. And I'm not sure those sorts of mistakes should be disqualifying from a seat on the Supreme Court or, or, or even a lower court. And so, but by putting them in the public eye and, you know, making everyone aware of his, you know, high school yearbook record, now we've, if he's confirmed, we've done some damage to the reputation of the court for mistakes that everybody makes in high school. And I just worry that this process is going to have actually a lasting negative impact on the court, uh, given how um, thorough and in-depth it's been. Yeah, it does seem like what... We've all gone through, certainly the, the judge and Dr. Ford, and, but really the entire legal community and, and court watchers everywhere. It seems like won't be quickly forgotten. And even if uh, Judge Kavanaugh were to become Justice Kavanaugh, it does seem like this would follow him and, and by association the court for you know, who knows at least some period of, of time and what manner it's hard to speculate, I suppose. But anyway, we can uh, go ahead and, and move forward to, to talk about the court uh, that uh, as it is presently constituted, so lacking a, a ninth justice. There are eight members that will hear argument today in a few cases. Um, Blaine, do you have any any thoughts uh, as to how long you might think we, we might be working with an eight-member court? And do you have any thoughts about sort of the, the nature of such a body or whether it will be hearing cases in the next few weeks that might be uh, closely divisive ones such that uh, a deciding member lacking might sort of make the difference between a 4-4 case and a 5-4-1. And maybe sort of more broadly speaking, I've also seen some articles written over the course of these past few weeks that perhaps an even-numbered court might be a good thing, and particularly in these politically contentious sorts of of times, because you would always need a a two-member decisive majority for any case to be determined. And so there'd be fewer close, maybe obviously no close one-vote majorities. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on, on any of that? Yes. You know, I, again, not being a, an expert in, in the Senate or the political confirmation process, I, you know, I can't, I'm not sure how long it would take if Justice Kavanaugh's, or if Judge Kavanaugh's not confirmed uh, to get a new nominee. I suspect that the vetting would start from scratch and that 
you know, Democrats would would demand a pretty long process for vetting the new nominee, which would, you know, probably uh, push it out uh, till the end of the year and even maybe even into the new year. So it would seems like it would be difficult. Seems like we would be months into the term before we'd have a new justice. And depending on how the midterm elections go, if we would uh, have one for several months after that. And in terms of the effect on the term, I think that, you know, the order list we got last Thursday is indicative of what we should uh, expect. You know, the court granted cert in, I think, five cases. And all of those are, you know, very non-ideological, no hot button issues, some, you know, very important issues, but not the ones that you generally see the court split 5-4 on. And one of those five cases was actually my case. The Romini Street versus Oracle is a petition we filed on behalf of Romini Street. And that's, I think, sort of emblematic of the kind of cases that the court's interested in and, you know, the way we presented it in the petition, that it's a, it's an issue that's divided the circuits, but it is costs available in copyright infringement actions. Not the kind of thing that you're going to see on the front page of the newspaper, but it's an important issue that comes up in virtually every copyright case, and it had split the circuits, and so the court can take that case and issue a ruling that really helps provide guidance to the lower courts and resolve this issue without being on the front page of the newspaper. And so I think to the extent we get more cert grants this term, you know, the court has a lot of work to do to fill up its docket. These are the kind of cases I expect to see and, you know, the other cases uh, that they granted on last Thursday are similar. Professor, do you have thoughts on the potential uh, duration nature of this uh, eight-member court or perhaps um, about the, the benefits or drawbacks of an even-numbered court generally? And on this question of whether a 4-4 court is a good thing, you know, it's certainly not as bad of a thing as people expected. I think we saw that during the time after Justice Scalia passed away that, you know, business of the court went on and it decided the vast majority of the important uh, cases, the, the important work it does. And so it's certainly not the end of the world. But I think that there were a number of cases on which the court split 4-4 that really just dragged out the resolution of the issue until until they had it had a nine-member court. And I think you'll you'll see that here as well. They, you know, they divide on issues such as, you know, class actions and arbitration and, you know, a lot of the administrative law issues, I think, are going to be closely divided. And, you know, it's it's helpful in some sense to have 4-4 decisions where you, you flesh out these issues and have the court issue opinions, but it also just delays an actual resolution and gives the lower courts not what they need to decide these issues. Yeah, uh, Professor, do you have anything to, to add there? Yeah, well, so I'm, I, again, <laughs> I agree with much of what Blaine has said. I don't have a strong sense of if Judge Kavanaugh is not confirmed, uh, how long a success will take. Obviously, that too will depend a little bit on polling before the midterms and on the midterms themselves and who uh, a next nominee might be if it comes to that. In the meantime, I absolutely agree. You've seen them take cases that are a little less splashy. There are some cases already in the pipeline that are sort of big and meaty, but not the ones that tend to be portrayed as blockbusters. And I think it's it's always worth remembering that about 45% of Supreme Court cases are nine nothing. That is, it's really easy to um, focus on the cases that are 5-4, that are super divided, that, that make the front page of the paper. But the court has a, a very important role 
in resolving questions, just as Blaine mentioned, and in further elaborating cases. And most of the time that it does that work, it's not five to four. Sometimes the court will obviously craft decisions in order to gain that consensus, but I don't know that that's a bad thing either. With respect to a 4-4 court, I agree. You saw sort of some issues and some matters sit in a holding pattern in the time after Justice Scalia passed, um, and there, while there was no, no immediate successor. I think you saw them sit in a holding pattern because there was an expectation that there would be a ninth justice. And some of the commentators that you've mentioned, Brian, are advocating for a system of a more permanent eight-member court, including, by the way, term limits so that uh, individuals sit on the court with, with predictable cycles and are replaced with predictable cycles by different administrations. And I have to say, I find there's a lot to recommend a system like that. It is true that it sacrifices some measure of finality that will be extremely important, extremely controversial issues that aren't resolved by the Supreme Court. Although the court will strive for consensus, there will be areas where it won't achieve that consensus. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. The issues that come out five to four are the ones where, obviously, there are good arguments on either side, are arguments where the court itself is deeply divided, which often reflects a deep divide among the public. And although an eight-member court roughly evenly split between those who are more liberal and those who are more conservative uh, would end up failing to resolve several issues that would continue to percolate with potentially different results among the circuits, I don't know that that is a bad thing on the issues for which we are most divided. I also think that an eight-member court divided like that would strive for narrower decisions in order to achieve consensus in order to get a, a supermajority. And I don't know that that's a bad thing either. That in my mind, it returns a little bit of power that the court has had to the branches that are supposed to be more politically reactive. And I view that as a net positive. Now, um, stipulating that eventually we, we will have a, a ninth justice, then in some of those close cases, those five, four rulings, it seems very likely that we might see Chief Justice Roberts as the the median or the, the middle vote that could decide a case one way or the other. That was, of course, the role famously played by Anthony Kennedy for a couple of decades or three decades as a swing justice. There's been folks that wonder whether we'll see a, a tangible or palpable shift or move by the chief justice to to, to occupy that that vacant role as, as a reliable swing justice, one that that you could count on to, to swing one way or the other in, in those closely divided cases. I think he has done that maybe most famously in, in the Obamacare ruling, but generally has uh, seen it to side on the conservative side of the ledger. Um, Blaine, do you have thoughts on whether we might see a slightly different Chief Justice Roberts who uh, would fill the, the true center of the court and do so in a way cognizant of the public perception of the court and in a way that makes it so folks feel like the court isn't predictable and uh, always you, know, you can always describe likely votes to all the justices. Do you have a thoughts on that? Yes. I, it, to me, I think this is actually an extremely important and even complicated issue. You know, Justice Kennedy, uh, you, you called him a median justice, which I think is the right term. He, People call him a swing justice, and he wasn't really a swing justice because when he, he was a reliable vote when his judicial philosophy was conservative on the issue, and he was a reliable vote when his judicial philosophy was liberal on the issue. 
He didn't waffle or swing. Um, and when he voted one way, he didn't rule narrowly. He swung for the fences. So Citizens United, Obergefell, all the capital punishment cases, all the federalism cases, he was on one side or the other, but he was all in and not narrow in the way that he ruled. And the chief justice approaches cases very differently. He is, as you mentioned, deeply concerned with the institutional legitimacy of the court, the public's perception of the court. Um, we did see this in the Obamacare case. And from last term in the Gill versus Whitford gerrymandering case, right, he was explicit at the oral argument about how he felt about the court getting involved in this, this issue, whether on the conservative or on the more liberal side. And so with him in the center, he is going to be very different, I think, in the way that he votes in cases as compared to Justice Kennedy. And you combine that with the Chief Justice's role as the last person to vote in conference and the ability to assign the opinion in every case in which he's in the majority. So if you play that out, the Chief Justice could literally cast the deciding vote and assign the opinion in every single 5-4 case. So not saying that will happen, but it will happen a lot. And when he does assign it, he will either take the opinion himself and decide the case narrowly, or he'll assign it to the justice who he thinks will write it narrowly, or at least who will write it in a way that's protective of the institutional legitimacy of the court. So I think the net effect is going to be far fewer 5-4 broad decisions and many more narrow decisions in those controversial, on those controversial issues uh, that, uh, that really divide the country and divide the court, which I agree with Professor Levitt is a very, very good thing. Uh, Professor, do you have thoughts on if we might see a somewhat different approach by the chief? Yeah, I, so I, I think his description of Blaine's description of Justice Kennedy is exactly right. And comparatively, the chief is certainly more of an incrementalist. There are individual opinions, and everybody can find some that feel a little bit more like the chief deciding to swing for the fences, often in dissent rather than in the majority, and that matters. But there's no question. I don't think either one of them is a swing vote. I think, uh, as Blaine said, it's it's more correct to think of them as median justices, um, which means that we're about to see the Roberts Court for the first time. So it's it's tradition to name the court after the chief, but this has been the Kennedy Court, as Blaine said, for decades. Um, and it is now the Roberts Court for real. And so I think we got a taste of what that might look like from some of the chief's decisions in the past with uh, a new justice likely to be to his right. Um, I, I think we're going to get a much more reliable flavor of what uh, of how his jurisprudence looks going forward. Um, it will have an institutionalist concern. There's no question. Um, it whether it does small things or whether it does big things with small words, I think is still open to question. And a lot of people are interested to see once once he is not only assigning but deciding um, rather than ceding the power to try and, and get Justice Kennedy on his side or not. I think a lot of people are, are eager to see what that yields. In terms of what uh, what that might yield, in fact, um, if, if, as you say, 
the likeliest scenario, professor is a knight justice to the right of the chief. What are some areas of law that you anticipate seeing some development in? Certainly one we've heard about during the, the past few confirmation processes have been um, the limiting of administrative agency power and the revisiting of the Chevron Doctrine and some talk about the use of the First Amendment to to be a deregulatory tool in the way that it was in the, uh, the First Amendment uh, public agency fee case last term. What, what are some of those uh, subject matter areas that you might think we could see the most significant development here in the next uh, few years, Professor? Yeah, Blaine mentioned two already, and I agree with them. The, the latitude permitted to the administrative state and rules about arbitration and class action suits, sort of in the procedural weeds, but as any any attorney knows, really important um, to the way the justice system is administrated. You mentioned a third. I think the, the role of the First Amendment the court has been very aggressive of late. I don't think that was only Justice Kennedy um, in uh, interpreting the First Amendment. And I would expect that to continue, but it'll be interesting to see how they work out some pretty difficult contours. I think another part of the First Amendment is likely to recur, uh, and that is the role of religion in the public sphere, both under the Constitution and, and by statute, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I think you're going to see some recurring battles in particular where a sort of religious preference runs up against the asserted rights of LGBT individuals. I don't think Masterpiece Cake Shop was the last word on that particular conflict. And there are a few cases bubbling up through the courts right now that revolve around potential conflict between the two. I think uh, you'll see a return to the court investigating law enforcement technology and surveillance and the permissible bounds of uh, searches and seizures like we saw in, in Carpenter not that long ago, involving the uses of new technology and the permissible uses of new technology. I think you may well see uh, recurring fights over the meaning of the Second Amendment. Justice Thomas has indicated for a long time that he wished the court would take more Second Amendment cases, and, and certainly litigants are bringing those challenges in state courts and in lower courts. I think you're going to see, likely with this president, some disputes over presidential power and uh, presidential intent and the way that that manifests in presidential action and potentially rules about uh, what lower courts do in response to that presidential action. Uh, so the scope of injunctions, all of these things were sort of previewed over the last term or two, but I don't think those fights are over. And one really important issue close to my heart and close to my scholarship, um, you are almost guaranteed to see a partisan gerrymandering case back on the docket in front of the court, even with an eight-member court, um, and certainly with nine. There are cases coming out of not only Wisconsin and Maryland uh, that we saw last term, but earlier, a case coming out of North Carolina. These cases have a special route to the Supreme Court. There's a three-judge trial court and then a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can't easily punt aside. And so I think those, those latter cases, the partisan gerrymandering cases, may be the very few that come whether the court wants them or not, and that could potentially yield some pretty blockbuster decisions. Blaine, do you have thoughts on the most likely area of legal development here with a newly constituted court? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that and just have a few additional thoughts. You know, for all of his, you know, incrementalist approach and and uh, sort of small C conservatism in keeping the court narrow in terms of its impact on uh, public policy and and being in the news, 
there are still some important issues, many of which uh, Professor Levitt highlighted, where I think the Roberts Court is still going to get involved and still make the decisions that it has to in order to clarify the law for the lower courts. And one of those is certainly the sort of collision of LGBT right and religious freedom. Uh, certainly a lot of the arbitration issues, class action issues that that we civil litigators deal with on a daily basis. And the reality is, is that the circuit conflicts emerge that have to be resolved in order to maintain uniformity. And even though, even though a lot of those are going to be 5-4 decisions, I don't see the Roberts Court shying away from them. And even on some of the hot-button issues that the Chief Justice may not want the court wading into, the court can grant cert with four votes. And so if we have Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Kavanaugh all wanting, let's say, the Second Amendment to be expanded, then those four can vote to grant cert and put the Chief Justice in a position where he's got to cast the deciding vote. And on something like the Second Amendment, where he's going to, uh, you know, tend to the right, those four can sort of force his hand, and he, and the court's going to have to take those cases, or, or it's going to take those cases, and uh, the Chief Justice is not going to be able to, you know, get out of all those cases on standing grounds or, or the like. Um, and then the only thought on the gerrymandering case, I, I agree with cases, I agree with uh, Professor Levitt, uh, the only sort of additional thought I have is that the court's way out of those cases is through the non-justiciability doctrine, and that's really the sort of linchpin I see is where Justice Kennedy had shown some willingness to really get into these and not treat them as political questions. I suspect that a Justice Kavanaugh, for example, uh, would have a different view and would sign, side more with the conservatives who, who don't think those are uh, justiciable uh, issues. Um, then maybe just one more before we get into uh, talking about just a few of the cases from the upcoming term. One thing that certainly was, was laid bare as we've spoken about is just how sort of suffused with political dynamics the, the court is. And one additional sort of factor that maybe bears on the court in the same way that it bears on the, the sort of overall political arena in the country is also the the, the funding of particular lawsuits or the funding of particular groups that bring in support cases as Amici. This was a, a point lingered on a bit at the Kavanaugh hearings, in particular by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who asked Kavanaugh quite a bit about the, the financing that Supreme Court's suits and amicus filings have behind them. And in many ways, the senator described such funding as largely sort of opaque and uncertain in its origin, perhaps even not domestic. Blaine, do you have any thoughts on this particular phenomenon, the funding of, of certain suits brought for often in very divisive and, and politically salient issues? Is, is it something that's gotten gotten grown worse? And are there significant uh, dangers related to uh, this uh, phenomenon? Yeah, I, I guess I don't. I don't see this as a big problem. Supreme Court and federal lower federal appeals courts require those who file amicus briefs to state if anyone paid them for their participation. They don't just, they don't require disclosure of other ties, and I see that as uh, Senator Whitehouse's concern that, you know, we don't know who the ultimate funder was. But I, I think the justices and their law clerks are all very smart. I don't think that they adopt a position just because some amicus group is promoting it. I think that they read those briefs and judge the merits of their arguments and their positions on the merits. And so 
if a particular group is giving the justices, for example, a whole bunch of a whole historical discussion on an issue that's very helpful to resolving it, then I'm not sure uh, they are likely to adopt it just because it's it's a particular organization. I think they're going to dig in and analyze that on their own. And it's it's also not the case that all the amicus briefs are coming in on one side and not on the other. They are very balanced on most of these big cases, and so they're getting competing perspectives from the Miki, and I don't, I don't see it as being a, a, a one-way problem or even much of a, a problem at all. Uh, Professor, do you have any concerns with uh, big money in, in the, the court filing system? No. I, I mean, this may be a surprise, and I've got some hesitation, although, although less than you might expect, about big money in other arenas, including electoral arenas. Mm-hmm. I, I think it it really, I agree with Blaine, I don't think it matters much in the Supreme Court. There have been test cases ever since there were cases. Mm-hmm. And certainly um, most litigation is brought not only with an eye toward justice for the individual, but with thoughts about broader context. Certainly by the time you get to appealing case to the Supreme Court, um, both the individual litigants and, and many amici will be highly attuned to the broader context. and and the parties know this, the judges know this, the justices know this. And I agree with Blaine, it doesn't affect how they rule or even which cases to take. If they find an issue compelling, they'll they'll grant cert. If they don't, they won't. If they find an argument compelling, they'll cite it. If they don't, they won't. And I don't think any of that has much to do with how a particular brief is being financed or even how a particular piece of litigation is being financed. Short of keeping an eye out for truly collusive litigation, um, which is rare in any category and certainly under under the relatively white-hot light of Supreme Court litigation, exceedingly rare. I don't think that that the financing of a case or the, the origins of a case make much of a difference to how the case is determined. And the more that the court acts incrementally, the less return there is for particular groups to advance their agenda in this way. So a particular case often decides the facts in front of it and then makes slightly broader rules for the future. But the next case can always further or cabin. And so um, Supreme Court cases very rarely resolve an issue in that way. Some some resolve more than others, but, but even those bigger cases, I don't think the financing of the argument makes much difference to how they're decided. Maybe we could just spend here a few minutes wrapping up with some chatter uh, some talk on some some of these cases that, that will be considered by the court as we've laid out and Blaine, as you explained there ha- has been sort of a, what seems to be a bit of a hesitancy by the eight member court here to grant anything that's, that's too particularly consequential but there are at least a, a few interesting cases that are on the docket at the moment judging from sort of the scope and the number of amicus filings i know three that seem like big uh, business law cases one Apple versus Pepper is out of the Ninth Circuit dealing with some antitrust laws and essentially whether the app, Apple App Store seems to be a, a monopoly. Um, one, Lorenzo versus the SEC, as I understand it, deals with whether or not the Supreme Court might sort of cut back on the, the breadth of a particular securities rule. There's another one, New Prime versus Oliveira, dealing with arbitrability and sort of a, the threshold issue of who, who decides whether an issue is arbitrable. Um, of of those or any other of sort of the, the bigger ones, uh, Blaine, do you have any thoughts on, on the, the key questions involved there? Yeah, these are, you know, sort of what we've been talking about, not 
hot button issues, but very important issues. I'm closer to the new prime and Apple cases than to the uh, the SEC case, and and the new prime case is being argued by my my partner Ted Boutros on uh, on Wednesday, um, and that that one's a you know very important for the transportation issue. It raises an important issue of really statutory interpretation because it really boils down to whether where the FAA excludes from the arbitration rules contracts of employment, whether that also includes. Uh, contracts of independent contractors, and so it you know boils down to that that simple uh, statutory interpretation question at bottom. And then, as you mentioned, it's the antecedent question: whether the applicability of the Federal Arbitration Act is a question for the arbitrator or for the judge. And that issue actually comes up all the time. And so, if there's a way for this relatively straightforward arbitration case to really move the needle in terms of clarifying for the lower courts, it may be on that antecedent question showing the lower courts when and in what circumstances they, these arbitrability questions should just be reserved for the arbitrator such that the trial court should just compel uh, arbitration. And then the Apple versus Pepper case is, as I understand it, is really at bottom about the availability of treble damages uh, because the, uh, the Illinois Brick case from the Supreme Court from several years ago uh, doesn't allow treble damages in these uh, pass-on theory cases of liability. And that means an allegation that the antitrust violator unlawfully unlawfully overcharged a third party, and then that third party then passed on the overcharge to the plaintiff. Uh, in that sort of a theory, you're not allowed to get the plaintiff's not allowed to get treble damages, and that's what the plaintiff's alleging here. It's that, that's another important issue. Antitrust law it may divide the ju- justices, but it's not one that's going to put the court uh, in the newspapers. So it's I think what we're what we should expect to see this term. Uh, Professor, do you have any thoughts on any of those uh, cases? And if if not, it's okay. We can move on to some of the others, but uh, feel free to jump in. Yeah, not not one of those, but I'll add one more. Sure. And this this might be one of the few cases that where an eight judge court might matter as to the result. And it's the case argued tomorrow, uh, Gundy versus the United States. That case is ostensibly about the latitude that congressional statute, the Sex Offender Registration Act gave to the attorney general to determine which people have to register when under what conditions. And it could either be a whimper of a case or extremely explosive, because the issue underlying it is how much power Congress can delegate to the executive. The non-delegation doctrine has been mostly something taught in 10 minutes of law school and then easily discarded for the last 60 years or so. The court has given Congress essentially all the latitude it wants and then some to delegate important policy decisions to the executive. And the very fact that the court took this case raised a lot of eyebrows, wondering whether the court took this case in order to cut back on uh, the amount of delegation that Congress gave. If the court says, no problem, uh, this was properly delegated here, I don't think anybody will sneeze. If the court signaled that it was preparing a broader cutback on congressional delegation, it would obviously leave lots of implications about um, not just in in the range of sex offender registration, but well beyond. And that, I think, could be potentially seismic. But the case is being argued tomorrow, and traditionally, at least, uh, justices who aren't on the court at the time of uh, a hearing, at the time of an oral argument, don't decide in the matter. And so unless it were to be 
recalendared. It's a case that will be decided by an eight-member court. And to the extent that some justices uh, voted for cert in order to throw a shot across the bow of, of sharper constraints on the delegation doctrine, that's going to be more difficult to do, I suspect, with an eight-member court. Maybe uh, briefly we could touch on a few criminal law-related cases in, in addition to that one you mentioned, Professor. Uh, if it's not kind of overall viewed as a, a term full of, full of blockbusters, there are at least some interesting and salient criminal law questions. Three come to mind. One deals with the constitutionality of whether of a, a, executing prisoners whose mental health has deteriorated such that they do not recall the crime committed or really understand what's going on and understand that, that they're being executed. One deals with the double jeopardy clause and whether the separate sovereigns piece of it should be rethought, whether the federal and state government can prosecute folks for the, the same offense. And the last one is an interesting one I hadn't realized wasn't answered yet, whether the Eighth Amendment's uh, excessive fines clause has been incorporated as against the states through the, the 14th Amendment. Professor, do you have any sort of uh, thoughts on any of those or any particularly salient questions at issue in them? Yeah. So these are the cases you've hit on on several of them. There's one other that I'd add. These are the cases that warm a constitutional law and criminal mm-hmm. procedure professor's heart because they involve some pretty thorny questions, and some of them are going to be fairly spicy in the media as well. Whenever capital punishment comes up, it is always a big deal. And these allegations about what do we do in, in terms of a scheduled execution when the defendant doesn't remember the crime will certainly be will provoke a lot of reactions in the public, I suspect. The Gamble case about separate sovereigns and double jeopardy, I think most people have focused on this case, not only because the the availability of prosecution by different states or by the state government and the federal government um, has been a longstanding exception. Again, when the court granted this case, it raised a lot of eyebrows, but also because of some of the legal difficulties besetting the president. People have wondered whether this case will have further political consequences in the current era. So there has been a great deal of attention on the presidential pardon power. It generally extends to federal crimes and not to crimes brought by state governments. One sovereign and only one sovereign has one crack at given criminal activity. That obviously extends the potential reach of the federal pardon power, particularly if a federal prosecution proceeds first and thereby precludes other state prosecutions. And that has has gotten a lot more salience than it might otherwise get. It's a very big issue in, in criminal procedure generally, but it's gotten even more salience given um, some of the discussion around um, federal convictions uh, in and around the, the administration and the president's use of the pardon power. Um, the last one you mentioned, Tim's versus Indiana, is, uh, as you said, one of the things people don't recognize hadn't already been decided, whether the Bill of Rights is incorporated against the states. So the first nine, ten amendments really apply to the federal government. They were passed in 1791 when uh, the federal government was the real concern. Over time, the vast majority of the provisions in the Bill of Rights have also been applied against the states, protections not only against the federal government, but against the states. Um, through the 14th Amendment's due process clause. But there are three provisions that haven't yet been. The Third Amendment protection against quartering soldiers doesn't come up all that often. The Fifth Amendment's uh, protection of a grand jury has not been incorporated against the states. So there are states where you can be uh, indicted without a grand jury. 
And the one at issue here, incorporation of the Eighth Amendment's uh, prohibition on excessive fines. Those are the only three that I'm aware of that have not yet been incorporated. And the context is particularly salient because uh, this case comes up in the context of asset forfeiture, which is a really hot button issue. Um, It's essentially a quasi-criminal, quasi-civil removal of property um, with a lower standard of proof. And there are plenty of people agitated about the government's civil forfeiture ability more generally. States often use forfeiture rules uh, as, as a budgetary mechanism. And this is going to be hotly watched by not only criminal procedure professors, um, but by vast portions of the public as well. One other case I want to flag just for a second, um, and that's a case called, I think, Nieves or Neves versus Bartlett. It's about retaliatory arrest. And the reason I want to mention it is it's a follow-on to a, a case last term. Last term, a case called Lawsman versus Riviera Beach addressed whether you can bring a claim for retaliatory arrest when there has been probable cause to execute the arrest. So there are certain ways that arrests are improper and individuals can sue for damages when an arrest is predicated on race or on gender or on protected First Amendment activity or other impermissible bases. But there was always a rule saying, or there was the assumption of a rule, uh, that you couldn't actually succeed in such a suit if there was underlying probable cause to arrest in the first instance. Mm -hmm. The Lausman case last term concerned an individual who was a gadfly in Riviera Beach, was arrested at a city council meeting, um, alleged that the arrest was retaliatory for what he was saying, um, protected First Amendment conduct. And the Supreme Court said, if there's a city policy, then it is possible to, if city policy to retaliate, then it's possible to bring this claim even if there was underlying probable cause for the arrest itself. But it very carefully disclaimed any broader rule about the normal run of whether it's possible to bring a retaliatory arrest claim without a city policy. And this is that case. This is that follow-on case. Whether someone who was arrested because they were drunk and disorderly could also bring a retaliatory arrest claim based on alleged protected First Amendment activity. And that's going to be a very big issue for for the mine run of of street-level policing and something people will be watching quite carefully. Blaine, do you have any thoughts on some of these uh, top-line criminal law cases? Yeah, this is a ways out my uh, my area of practice and expertise, so I, I don't have anything to add to uh, Professor Levitt's excellent uh, summary. Uh, just thematically, the only thing that stood out to me was Justice Kennedy was a real leader on the court in the Eighth Amendment area, and he wrote either all of or the vast majority of the recent expansion of the, uh, the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishment protection to, you know, the, the handicapped and minors and, and the like. And so this, this new case, it's going to be interesting to see how the court resolves it without Justice Kennedy's vote and without his influence on it as either a 4-4 court or with a, with a new justice. And then the other uh, thought I had was on the Gamble case. This is, this is an interesting case because it's a, it's a challenge, like we saw last term, to the court's prior precedents and a request, really, for the court to overturn decisions from the 50s um, dealing with this separate sovereigns doctrine. And, and this, is, this is not an area where it's as, as much liberal-conservative divide, because I think 
uh, you have Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas both urging the court to reconsider the separate sovereigns doctrine. So it'll be interesting to see how the court uh, deals with that when it deals with this issue of um, overturning precedent when it's not a you know five four liberals versus conservatives issue. Then uh, just starting to wrap up, there are a few cases out of our, our neck of the woods here, the Ninth Circuit, that seemed of, of some interest. Maybe I could flag one or two of those. One, uh, Nielsen versus Preap was a, a Ninth Circuit case um, dealing with an immigration law question and when uh, particular non-citizens become exempt from a, a mandatory uh, detention um, awaiting potential removal proceedings. Lamps Plus versus Varela is another one dealing with the Federal Arbitration Act and when it uh, is seen to to apply or not based on certain contractual language. And Brink versus uh, Gauss is a, an- another Ninth Circuit one that seems significant because it, it deals with whether a fairly common mechanism, as I understand it, the Cypre doctrine can be permissible in class actions where the award might be too small to direct it to individual folks that are in the in the class, so instead much of it goes to to charities that may or may not be terribly related to, to the cause of action itself. Blaine, do you have any thoughts on some of these uh, local uh, Ninth Circuit ones that are up before the High Court? Yeah, the two that I've been following most closely have been the Lamps Plus and uh, uh, the Frank versus Gauss case. Those are both incredibly important for civil practice. Um, the Lamps Plus cl- case involved a really expansive reading of an arbitration clause that did not provide expressly for a class action arbitration. But the Ninth Circuit, in a panel that included the late uh, Judge Reinhardt, who passed away last March, um, to, that interpreted a provision to allow for, for class-wide arbitration. And that's, that's really important because these arbitration agreements are in many cases written to, uh, specifically to allow individual arbitration. And, and that's important because the appellate rights from an arbitration are very limited. So companies want individual arbitration because they're giving up their appellate rights. Uh, if, if it's going to be a class action, they would much rather have that be in federal court where they have a right to appeal and to have the right for, even for interlocutory review of class certification decisions. So this is going to be a very important case. And, you know, I would predict that that it gets reversed, given the court's recent precedents, given the Stolt-Nielsen case, even a 4-4 case, even a 4-4 court, I think, is going to reverse in the Lamps Plus case. And then Frank versus Gauss is another really important issue that comes up all the time in class actions. Uh, Cypre settlements, as you mentioned, are these settlements where in order to make the settlement uh, work, given the competing interests of the defendants and the plaintiffs and the plaintiff's lawyers, uh, oftentimes the pot has to be bigger with a significant portion of that money going to charities. But as you know, Ted Frank, who is the objector in the, in the case, argues in many, many of these cases, uh, that is lining the pockets of the plaintiff's lawyers at the expense of the class members who are getting very little money and by putting a, a major expense on, on the defendants. Uh, what's interesting about these Cypre cases and the objector uh, environment and situation is that the plaintiffs and the defendants are consenting to the settlement, and you have someone from the outside trying to blow it up, which frustrates both the defendants and the plaintiffs' lawyers who you know want to um, resolve the settlement and move on. Um, but this is a it's an important issue. It's one that Chief Justice Roberts has flagged in other opinions, and so it'll have a major impact on on civil practice, in particular on class actions. 
Professor, any thoughts on any of these uh, more local ones? Yeah, just to add to the the Frank case that, that Blaine was talking about, it, it may come out of the Ninth Circuit, but I don't think it's it's particularly local in that I agree it's it's going to have a major impact one way or the other. Um, the the facts of the case may, may show why this is an issue. So uh, I think this was a class action suit over uh, disclosure of Google search results for about 129 million people. And it's not hard to imagine why determining the injury and the damages for individuals of the particular disclosure of their search results might be tremendously cumbersome. Um, and so the decision was made. Uh, as Blaine said, there was a, a settlement to distribute not only most, but in this case, all of the recovery uh, to charities um, attempting to address the underlying problem rather than to individual victims. This is an issue, as he said, that's gotten a lot of attention uh, recently in a number of quarters, including by the Department of Justice, Attorney General Sessions. One of the things that he did last year and and it's tough to call it quiet, although there was an awful lot of noise, and so I'm not sure that it was picked up on quite as as, as roundly as might otherwise have been the case, um, is he essentially put an end to the Department of Justice's ability to include third-party Cypre offers in settlements. Mm-hmm. That has the most impact on cases like environmental cases. It has a substantial impact on banking cases and lending cases. Any case where there is damage done and and the individual recovery by individual members is either too cumbersome or insufficient to remedy the conditions, at least in a settlement, at least as far as both parties agree. There's no question that it also, uh, there is an incentive for plaintiff's lawyers to make sure that the settlement is larger. And so um, those instincts can run sort of against each other in the, in the private uh, civil law system. Um, there are bigger questions about whether those same concerns apply when the Department of Justice is the plaintiff. Nevertheless, the Attorney General sort of declared an end to these third-party settlements, at least uh, during his leadership of the Department of Justice, and that was controversial. And now that controversy is, I think, likely to play out in the Supreme Court docket. Then maybe just about one last one before we close up. Professor, do you have any sort of final thoughts on the term generally or potential cases that uh, are up on petition but haven't been granted yet or any other concluding uh, remarks? One more that people want to watch just because it doesn't come up all that often. There's a booze case. And given how much uh, drinking has been in the news lately, this might be of particular (laughs) saucy salience uh, to court watchers. Um, The Tennessee Wine and Spirits case is about the 21st Amendment, um, the repeal of prohibition. Normally, states aren't allowed to favor in-state entities at the expense of -of out-of-state entities, the Dormant Commerce Clause Doctrine, much criticized, by the way, including by certain members of the current court. The question in this case is whether the 21st Amendment provides an out, provides an exemption, and whether it specifically lets states give licenses to entities that have been in-state for a while at the expense of, uh, in this case, a complete restriction on entities that haven't. So I think that'll be, again, it's, it's among the cases that might not make the front page of the news, but have more to offer those who watch the court, either by way of prurient interest or by way of legal interest than, than you might otherwise think. There are going to be a series of cases that will come up to the court on motions for stays or on uh, interlocutory procedure. This happens every cycle. It will happen again this coming term. 
and one of the ones that I think people are watching really closely is uh, litigation over the census and whether the census will include a question about citizenship status. Um, I would expect the decisions to be litigated in the trial court and potentially the Court of Appeals, but um, the Supreme Court has already been asked to weigh in actually this week on depositions of senior administration officials. And I doubt that's the last time that the Supreme Court will be asked to weigh in on the matter. So uh, there'll be, even with a, an eight-member court, um, no matter how long that persists, and even with a docket that reflects uh, fewer of the truly explosive national issues that, that we've come to expect of the court in, in recent terms, uh, I think there's plenty to um, keep observers of the court engaged. Great. Uh, Blaine, any uh, final thoughts? Yeah, I, I will give you one um, likely grant and one likely deny um, on the court's uh, cert docket as sort of, I think, emblematic of where the court is and how, how this term is likely to shake out. Um, the likely grant, I would say, is the Zappos versus Stevens case where the court's asked to determine whether individuals whose personal information is held in a database that's breached by hackers have Article Three standing, even though even if there's no additional concrete injury, this issue comes up a lot and it has divided the circuits and it's an important issue, but at the end of the day, it's just Article Three standing. I'd say that's a likely grant and a likely deny, even though it's an important and interesting issue, is uh, whether um, you know the word sex in Title VII's prohibition on dis discrimination because of sex includes gender identity and, uh, tra and transgender status. Uh, that's a you know important issue, a hot button issue, but it's one that I don't see the court wading into now. Given the four four court, given the chief justice, you know, in concerns that we've discussed over incrementalism and and uh, institutional legitimacy, and so I think you're going to see a lot more cases this term on the Article three standing docket than on the uh, gender identity and transgender status in Title seven, just given where the court is and where. Uh, uh, where it's likely to go in the near future. Well, excellent. It sounds like it will be a, an interesting term to be sure. Blaine Evanson, partner with Gibson Dunn in Crutcher in Orange County. Thanks very much for, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And of course, uh, Professor Justin Levitt from Loyola Law School. Thank you as well. Of course. Thank you. And then is our Supreme Court October term 2018 preview. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Blaine Evanson and Justin Levitt. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one CLA credit can be yours. For finding a short true-false test on the TLAjournal.com page where this program appears. Also, don't forget to find us and rate us and listen to us on the various podcast streaming avenues by searching for the weekly appellate report. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to talking to you next time. Have a great week. <laughs>